Uh, well, good evening, everyone. My name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. Can you turn to the person next to you and ask them this simple question? It's quite deep. might take you a while to answer this. Um, are you a good dancer? Are you a good dancer? Let's have a chat to the person next to you. Some of you here clearly have got to move because you're just unpacking all of them, aren't you? You know, I, I, like, my, my, I guess that's a simple question. Are you a good dancer? Like, in all seriousness, do you think you have some moves like Mike Roberts, you know, or Rod Bailey? You know, do you, you know... Uh, do you have some moves? Um, I, I want to be honest with you and frank with you and humble with you. Yeah, I think I've got some moves. Um, um, to be honest with you, I think my competence level is way, way below my confidence level. Um, but that's okay. It makes me interesting to watch. Uh, to be honest with you, I've got like one move, which is more, not so much a dance move, but a dance strategy. Uh, and I call it how to, be, um, how to start a movement. That's what I like to call it. Uh, and what I do is I gather um, some uh, poor souls to come follow me as we then go find someone who's a dancer and then you imitate them. And the best way to do this is you try and imitate them while they're not noticing, right? So if they're like doing the snorkel, you do the snorkel, you know, all sorts of things. But then over time, they catch on. And in that moment, you know, if they're fun people, they keep on going and they start you know, doing the best job they can, but most of them just run away, which is a real shame. Uh, and it's really difficult actually to get this going. Uh, I've had some successes over the years. Uh, one time at a youth camp, I got five little youth kids to come with me, and we literally got a whole camp of 300 people following one dude. It was this epic dancer. It was amazing. And a few years ago at a wedding, uh, I actually got my group of my mates together once again, and we uh, followed the groom, and he was a real good dancer. And so it worked really well. We ended up getting the whole entire wedding watching us as to what looked like an impromptu dance that we prepared, you know, for weeks before. Not the case at all. I've had some successes, but I've also had a lot of failures. And a lot of people look at me weirdly uh, over the years that I've tried to do this because trying to start a movement is actually quite difficult. It's quite difficult. My guess is you know this, not just on the dance floor, but you know this in reality and in life. My, my guess is that you know that if you're a musician, right, such as, for example, Travis, who we all love dearly, that it's quite difficult to get a fan base, or, for example, if you're a website designer, it's quite difficult for you to be able to get a website or build one where people click and come visit. Or if you're a podcast maker, for example, it's hard to get subscribers. We all know that it's difficult to get a following, to get momentum, to get a movement to occur. And the brutal truth is, is that most new ideas, most new businesses, most new movements fail. That they fail either to get started or they fail to last for a significant period of time. Which like, begs the question, right? I wonder if you ever thought about this. How did the Christian movement begin and be so successful? Like, I wonder if you thought this through. How could it, like an odd bunch of uneducated men and women from 2,000 years ago who belonged to a fringe part of society within the Roman Empire influence one of the most greatest empires of all time within 200 years to make Christianity their main religion? Or outside the Roman Empire, think of today and think about the fact that there's about 2 billion people who maybe are not genuine Christians, because the world would look pretty different if that's the case, but at least are fans of, associate with the Christian faith. Like, even if you're not a believer here tonight, you must go, how did that happen? How did that happen? Well, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the ground zero of the Christian movement, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost where the, the Christian movement changed from 20 people into 3,000 people in one afternoon. And what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see is that the Christian movement did not spread and did not continue to grow because of military, political, or financial power, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And the way we're going to do this, to give you a roadmap as we uh, go through uh, Acts chapter 2, is we're going to be talking about uh, Pentecost. Pentecost. 
Now, maybe you're like, well, what is Pentecost? I'll get to that later on. If you already know what Pentecost is, maybe you're wondering, why are we talking about that right now? Like, we just had Easter, we're in Luke's Gospel, why are we talking about Pentecost? Well, I think in our tribe, if I'm honest, uh, if you don't know what I mean by that, don't worry. Uh, but in our, I guess, Baptist Reformed churches, we can be a bit hesitant, a bit fearful of the word Pentecost because of Pentecostals. We're our brothers and sisters, but at times we think, you know, a bit weird, and so we're a bit unsure of them. We love them, but, you know, we're a bit fearful of them, so to speak. We've got our hesitancy. Well, the truth is, is we should be looking at Pentecost, because it's a great time to reflect and to think about, just like Esau, how God comes down in His Holy Spirit and equips us to be on mission and to grow in holiness. And it's a real shame if we skip over this. And so, like I said, let's talk about Pentecost, which is the ground zero of the Christian movement. And to do that, I've got three points for you, or three uh, guides the first one we're going to talk about is the history of Pentecost. Secondly, the meaning of Pentecost. And thirdly, the right response to Pentecost. The history, the meaning, the right response. And so let's do this by digging into the Acts. And we're actually going to begin in chapter 1. You have to go back before we go forward. And so it should come up on your screen. Uh, and let me read out to you verses roughly 3 to 9. It says this, After his suffering, he, that's Jesus, presented himself to them, that's the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. You see, what happened here is Easter was last week, and what we learned is that Jesus uh, died and then was resurrected uh, from the dead, that he is alive and well, and then he appeared to his disciples, and he did that for about 40 or so days. And as he did that, he taught them many things, and in particular, he gave them the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, or as it says here, be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm just speculating here, but my guess is, if I was a disciple of Jesus back then, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, I'll be there going, that should be a walk in the park, right? Like, like, like imagine doing evangelism, for example, like talking about Jesus at the uni bar, you know, you're talking to an engineer, you know, dressed like a dork, because they're all dressed like dorks. Um... And you're there, no offense, I was an engineer, sorry if I've offended you. Um, uh, and as you're there, and someone's like, no, nah, I don't believe in Jesus, that's just all rubbish. Then you'd be like, hey, well, he, here is Jesus, like here he is. Like, hey Jesus, can you do that trick of turning water into wine? Boom! Like, you know, huge success. People would be following Jesus straight away. Evangelism would be a walk in the park. But Jesus doesn't stick around, does he? He ascends back to heaven with his disciples, jaw drops, looking down like I am right now as my son comes on the stage. Um, go back to mommy. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. So Jesus ascends, right? They're like, oh, like, and they're like thinking, man, is this like a game of, you know, cosmic hide and seek? Like, is Jesus coming back? You know, surely he's going to be joking, right? And they're like looking at, they don't have watches, but they're probably looking at, you know, fake watches and going, is he coming back? Like, surely, like, how are we meant to tell people that he's alive when he's not here? When he's not here? And then Jesus, remember, says to them, wait, wait, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so this odd group of people, uh, the disciples, grieving mothers, or mother, sorry, return back to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place, probably in one house. And so this small group of anxious disciples, probably feeling alone, 
probably feeling confused, probably feeling overwhelmed by the weight of Jesus' commands to go and make disciples of all nations. There's probably maximum like 20 of them in one room. This small group of fearful disciples goes back into the crowded city of Jerusalem where there is hundreds, probably thousands of Jews who are gathering in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Same Jews who plotted and schemed to kill their saviour Jesus and probably wanted to kill followers of Jesus as well. But maybe you're wondering, what, what, what is Pentecost here? What's the Jewish festival of Pentecost in particular? And what does the word Pentecost mean? So let me try and explain for you uh, in verse 1 where it says on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish Pentecost. You see, about 2,000 years ago, I don't know if you know this, you probably did, but Israel was a farming society. And like pretty much every society back then, you would celebrate when harvest was coming in, when the first fruits were coming in, because that was a time to celebrate and to be merry. And the Jews had a festival called uh, the Feast of the First Fruits, where they would thank God for the harvest and the fruit they were about to receive in that season. And the word Pentecost specifically is a Greek word that means 50. And this festival, the first fruits, the Jewish one, was held 50 days after Passover, which is even a bigger festival for them. You see, about 50 days after um, Passover was the time where the first fruits would come in. You know, the apples would fall from the orchard and, you know, the first grapes would drop from the vine. This was a yearly celebration, the, the day of Pentecost for the Jews. And this would be similar to us with Australia Day or Anzac Day. This is a big deal. And that's why people, all Jewish people from like all over the world, Asia, Africa and beyond, came to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival of the first fruits. And it's at this precise time that the Spirit of God comes down on His people. And when that happens, it looks like tongues of fire and a huge wind. And then all of a sudden, the disciples start to speak in languages that they do not know. As to symbolize how God, the Holy Spirit, is coming not to dwell in a temple, not even to dwell in Jesus, but to come and dwell in ordinary men and women like you and me. And at this moment, the curse of Babel, basically from Genesis, was temporarily reversed. As God uses languages not to divide, but to unite people. And as this happened, the large Jewish crowd was intrigued. They were interested, they were fascinated by what's going on. As they saw these ordinary, uneducated men and women speaking in multiple languages. You know, to, to try and contextualize this for you today, this would be like me right here, right now, filled with the Holy Spirit, just speaking flawless Mandarin in front of you right now. And some of you here who speak Mandarin would be like, whoa, Joel speaks Mandarin. And, and not even with that Aussie accent. Well, that's just incredible, right? That's what it would be like. But, you know, what's actually interesting is actually what occurred here. It sort of polarized the Jewish crowd. Some people thought, oh, they're just drunk. While others were intrigued and like, what's going on here? They were amazed and they were perplexed. And let's be honest, we can relate to them. If you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, you, know, you can relate to being amazed, but a bit perplexed, a bit compelled, but confused by the Holy Spirit. You know, like we, like we get God the Father, like we understand Him. We get God the Son, we get Him, but, but God the Holy Spirit, oh, I don't fully understand Him. Makes me feel a bit nervous. As you know, last week was Easter, and the week following up to Easter, uh, my wife was trying to teach my son Isaac, actually the one who came up on the stage, about Easter, and was trying to teach him the Easter story. And uh, as she got to the part of Pentecost, she was trying to explain to him that it's when uh, God in, in the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells in us, so we may have a relationship with God. And uh, my son Isaac, uh, he thought what that meant is that the Holy Spirit comes into your stomach or into your tummy, as he said. Uh, and so when my wife Emma was pregnant with our uh, newborn Lily last year, uh, that the Holy Spirit filled my wife. Uh, and then when she gave birth to Lily, that the Holy Spirit is Lily. 
Uh, now, my daughter is perfect and she'll never sin in any way, but she is not actually God or the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit can be a bit confusing. This day of Pentecost can be a bit confusing. And so you, you can't blame the crowd who says, what does this mean? What does this mean? What's going on here? What is the meaning here of Pentecost? And so let's, let's move on to point two, the meaning of Pentecost. And to answer this, let's see how Peter responds to the crowd in verse 14. It should come up on the screen. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now, just remember, this is the same Peter who got scared so that he denied Jesus a few weeks ago. He says this, Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. He's a great preacher. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. See, what Peter is basically saying here is he's like, look, they're not drunk, right? It's nine in the morning. Who gets drunk at nine in the morning? They're not filled by alcoholic spirits. They're filled by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then what Peter does here is this uneducated fisherman just becomes this beast of an Old Testament scholar. As he just quotes to them, the Old Testament, in particular, Joel chapter 2, and and explains to them, hey, you know that prophecy of the Holy Spirit coming on all people? That is what is happening right now. And right now, man, the Jews, man, they would have been intrigued by this. I would, I would have found this fascinating. You know, like they would have been people who have read the whole testament and they would have seen how the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament only goes to a few people, to, to kings like David, to, to prophets like Daniel, or to judges like Gideon. The Holy Spirit wasn't for everyone, but only a select few. And they were anticipating this time when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people, just like they were waiting for the Messiah, they were waiting for this day as well. You see, this Jewish crowd, they would have grown up reading stories of David defeating Goliath. They would have read stories of Gideon defeating the Midianites, of Daniel surviving in the lion's den. As little Jewish boys and girls, they would have grown up going, I want to be like Daniel. I want to be like Deborah. I want to be like David. And yet for that to happen, they know they needed the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so what does Peter do here? Does he give them a three-point sermon on the Holy Spirit and how to receive him? Well, no, let's have a look at what he does and who he talks about. Verse 22 to 23, Peter says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now look, if the the crowd was cheering every word of Peter's before, they're now not cheering. They're probably quiet, whispering, possibly booing. You know, as soon as they, Peter mentions the, the name of Jesus, this Jewish crowd would be like, no, no, not Jesus. No, we didn't like him and his pompous teaching. We didn't like him at all. We killed him. Get rid of him. We want to know about the Holy Spirit. Start talking more about him. He said, don't, don't talk about Jesus. Peter's popularity with the crowd would have plunged as soon as he mentioned Jesus' name and it would have continued to drop after the two truths that he mentioned about Jesus' death. See, I wonder if you picked up on the two truths that are really important that Peter mentions here. The first one that he mentions is that Jesus' death was planned by God. It was planned by God. In other words, God knew what was happening at the cross. Like, have you ever thought that through? When Jesus was dying on the cross, God the Father and God the Spirit weren't freaking out in heaven going, No! What are you doing? They knew. God had planned this before the creation of the world, that this was the way he was going to redeem humanity. God knew. 
And the second fact, though, that Peter says, not only did God plan this, he says, but you executed it. And you guys are responsible for it. See, notice how he says, you put him to death by the help of wicked men. See, what's going on here is within two sentences, Peter says two incredible truths. It seems contradictory, but actually complement one another. One, God had planned this. Two, you executed this and you were responsible for it. Now, what's really shocking, though, about this is that some of the Jews in this crowd would have been responsible for the death of Jesus. They would have schemed, they would have plot for Jesus' execution, or they would have been, at least in the crowd, yelling out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And yet some of the Jews in this crowd didn't have a part to play. You know, they're from Asia, from Africa, they're from all over the world. They probably rocked in and like, who's this Jesus dude? What's going on? And yet none of that seems to bother Peter at all. Especially when he says, you killed him. In case you missed it, I say this, you killed him. You killed him. In Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, I'm not too sure if you've seen it, but the only scene Mel Gibson, who was the director, is actually in, is a picture of Mel Gibson's hand clutching the hammer that drives the nails into the hands of Jesus. It's the only place that Mel Gibson wanted to be in the movie as well. See, what's going on here? Why is Peter blaming everyone for the death of Jesus? Well, truth be told, if Peter was here today preaching instead of me, he would say a similar message to us here as well. Because the confronting truth of sin is that the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. The Bible also says that Jesus died for the sin of the world, that he died for the sin of the Jews who crucified him, but also for us here. You see, everyone who's ever rebelled against the Creator in word, thought, or deed put Jesus on the cross and has some part to play. So your sin of lying to your co-worker, your sin of looking at pornography, your sin of lusting after materialistic possessions, your sin of living a selfish life instead of a God-honoring life, put Jesus on the cross. Like Mel Gibson, we drove the nails through Christ's hands. The Apostle Peter knew this. Mel Gibson understood this. The question is, do we? The question is, do we? In 2015, uh, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, called EPA, discovered that the car manufacturer Volkswagen had fitted its diesel cars with defeated devices, a software that enabled Volkswagen cars to pass the standards emissions tests in laboratories, but then emit up to 40 times the permissible levels of harmful nitrogen oxide for normal driving conditions. This scandal ended up costing the German automobile company around $30 billion in fines, settlements, and compensation fees. There's a show about this scandal on Netflix called Dirty Money, and it does a great job of unpacking this story and how it all came about. And in particular, it does a great story about talking about how dodgy the executives of VW were in Germany. You see, these executives at Volkswagen, they denied this. They lied about this. They tried to suppress this, even though they had planned it all along. And the truth, when the truth came out, many of them were fined and some of them were even jailed. See, these executives thought they could, were so clever that they could just trick the whole world and hide the truth of what was going on. Can I be straight with you tonight? God knows everything about you. God knows everything about you. He knows the darkness within our souls. He knows every lie we've ever told. He knows every evil thought we've ever pondered. He knows. Like We can't escape from him. We can't play hide and seek from the God of the universe. 
Like these executives of Volkswagen, we can't hide from the world, so we can't hide from God. He knows our ugliness. He knows our selfishness. He knows our sinfulness. He knows what lies beneath the covers. He knows what's behind the makeup. He knows what's behind the facade we put on. He knows. And yet, the great news, the good news of the gospel is despite this knowledge, God still loves us to the point that he sends his only son to die for us on the cross so that by faith in him, we may be saved, we may be forgiven, and we can become children of God. I love how Peter unpacks the gospel here, and there's lots of verses here that I just don't have time to unpack. So I want to read out to you one of my favorite ones, which is verse 24, when talking about Jesus. It says this, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so church, back to that question, the meaning of Pentecost. What does it all mean? What is the meaning of Pentecost? What is going on here? Let me tell you this, that Pentecost has taken on a new meaning. That as Christians, when we think of Pentecost, we don't think of the first fruits of apples dropping or grapes dropping, but we think of the first fruits of Jesus' resurrection and the hope that we have that one day we will be resurrected as well. We think of the first fruits of God, the Holy Spirit, who we are able to receive, which enables us to give us a taste of the age to come. And so we celebrate and we think about the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us given not just to the heroes of the faith, but given to all people, all men, women, children from every tribe, tongue, and nation who put their faith in Jesus. That's what we celebrate. That's what we think about. And the Pentecost is a beautiful day and a beautiful time for us to remember God's goodness to us. So that's the meaning. It takes on a new meaning. But what is the right response to Pentecost? What is the right response? Well, to answer that question, let's see what happens in the passage in verse 37 to 41 says this, this is the crowd, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What is the right response to Pentecost? Well, let me tell you, firstly, there is a right response and a wrong response. And let me also tell you that to not respond is a response. And to be blunt with you, just like Peter is blunt with his crowd, it would be the wrong response. It'd be the wrong response. And so can I just echo what Peter says here tonight, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to save yourself from this corrupt generation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, to listen to Peter's words where he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look, if you're here tonight and you're not a, a follower of Jesus, then can I just be honest with you? The reason why you're here tonight is because God is wooing you here so you may hear this gospel message, this good news, an offer of forgiveness, so you return in repentance and faith. And maybe if you're a bit offended by that, and by, by bluntness, and my call for you to repent. Well, there's a bunch of Christians who are dead now, but they, they had a, a great saying, they were the Puritans, and the saying they said was like this, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. 
And so can I plead with you tonight to, to let the gospel, the good news of forgiveness on offer for you to melt that icy heart of yours and to not harden it. But turn to your God and creator who knows you and loves you. For the right response to Pentecost is repentance and faith. The right response to the good news of the gospel is repentance and faith. And hey, because we're a Baptist church, it also involves baptism. The sign of declaring our allegiance to our Savior. And so can I encourage you tonight, even if this is the first time you've come to church, to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized. If you're really keen, I'll fill up the pool behind me and we'll get doing it tonight. It is the best decision you'll ever make. But if you are a follower of Jesus here tonight, maybe you're thinking, how do, how do I apply this passage for me? Well, I've been reflecting and I've got, I guess, two points for us to chew on. The first point I've got for us is this. Number one, don't be distracted. If you're a Christian here tonight, don't be distracted. You see, I think sometimes we look at Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and we get distracted by the supernatural. You know, how the uh, apostles are speaking in different languages and how there's tongues of fire and we're really blown away by it but to the point that actually our focus is not on what we should be focusing on. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, like whenever we read the Old Testament, we tend to view the Bible as more descriptive, right? So in particular, when we read about David versus Goliath, we know that the Bible is describing David's life and not describing what will happen in our life. Like if you don't know this, you're probably not going to fight a nine foot tall Philistine and become the king of Israel, okay? It's probably not going to happen. But when it comes to the book of Acts, for some reason, our lenses change a little bit and we think instead of this being you know, partially descriptive, it's purely prescriptive and this is describing what will happen to everyone when the Holy Spirit enters into their hearts. And so as a result, we should speak in tongues, we should have tongues of fire above us if we genuinely have the Holy Spirit. And when we do this, what happens is we can get distracted and our eyes can be focused on the things that actually God doesn't want us to be focusing on and we can actually miss the real miracle, the real work and purpose of the Holy Spirit here. Recently, as many of you know, I got my bike license. Uh, and if you ever ride, uh, ride a motorbike, as many of you here do and know, is when you ride a motorbike, is it's really important where you look. Because where you look is where you end up. And so if you're riding a motorbike, and in particular if you're on a corner or a roundabout, uh, if you're looking straight ahead, or if you're looking at the car in front of you, you're going to crash into that car. And so if you want to actually survive, you've got to look where you want to end up. And so you look to the right as you turn right. It's a bit weird at first, but you get used to it, and it's really important that your focus is correct. And so tonight, when we look at this passage, it's important that we have the right focus, that we see the real miracle that's going on here, that we don't get distracted. And if you're wondering, what is the real miracle here? Well, let me me break it for you. It's the fact that 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. The 3,000 Jews, some of them that would have been yelling out, crucify him only a weeks before, are now declaring Jesus as their king that the Holy Spirit works through this uneducated fisherman and proclaims the gospel so boldly that these people respond in repentance and faith. Church, there's no greater miracle than that. There's no greater miracle than seeing people become Christians. We've seen that here in this service. We've seen this here in some of my friends who I love dearly. There's nothing better than seeing people change from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There's no greater joy, no greater thrill than that. And so let me ask you, are you distracted right now? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you distracted? The famous African bishop Augustine says that our hearts can be distracted to the point that the love of our hearts can be disordered. In other words, our priorities become out of order. And so let me ask you this, are you disordered? As a follower of Jesus, are you loving things more so or or caring about things way more than what God wants you to care about? Have you forgotten the Great Commission, the call in our hearts? Have you forgotten the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us? 
Are we too distracted with other things in life? Are we too busy to not make friends with people who don't know Jesus yet or too busy not to spend time with them? I'm your pastor. Let me tell you, I get distracted. I get busy. Which is why I'm so thankful for you guys here to keep me accountable on that, but also for the reminder of this passage of our call to go and reach people for Christ. And let me tell you, this is no, there's no greater joy than seeing someone become a Christian. There's no greater joy. It's better than any goal you can kick in soccer. It's better than any promotion you'll ever get. It's, it's better than every, any relationship you'll ever have. There's no greater joy than seeing people become followers of Jesus. So don't be distracted. But number two, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. If you're feeling convicted right now by the Holy Spirit that you need to repent of your missionless life or your hard-heartedness towards evangelism, don't be discouraged. If that's happening, that's good. It means the Holy Spirit is working through your heart and convicting you and trying to change you. And the beautiful truth of the Holy Spirit is that if you're a follower of Jesus, He is with you in all seasons of life. He is with you when you're in those highs and maybe you heard a great sermon or you've you know, been to a great conference a week in a way, but He's also with you through the dark seasons of life. He's with you at all times. Don't be discouraged, even when you're feeling a bit like a failure like Peter. Don't ever think that God can never work through you to share the gospel with your work colleagues, neighbors, or friends, because that is not true. You have the same Holy Spirit within you. And so let me encourage you, if you've ever been a coward in the past, like Peter, ever denied Jesus in the past, like Peter, ever lacked faith in the past, like Peter, ever mess up, like Peter, know that God can and still work through you by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so don't be a defeatist. Pray and ask for the Spirit's help to talk to people about Jesus, to love those around us who do not know him yet. Don't be discouraged. God is with you. Don't be distracted. Be refocused and be encouraged that you have the power to go and share the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. Church Pentecost is a time of celebration because it's when God's Spirit comes to his people And gives us the gifts so that we have the Holy Spirit to invade our ordinary lives and try and love people for Christ. And so church, may we not be distracted, but may we also not be discouraged. God is with us. God wants to use us and God will use us. And if you ever are discouraged and you're like, Joel, I I just just don't know. Can I encourage you to look in the mirror? Look in the mirror if you're a follower of Jesus. And look at the person who God's Spirit was able to save. And if you're still feeling discouraged, come to church and look around. And see the multiple people that God has saved by the power of his gospel and the power of his spirit. Because that is the good news of Jesus alive and well and he's coming back. And so may we go tell others about him. How about I pray to close? Father God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus and for what he did at the cross to save us. Lord, help us to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. But Lord, help us to know that who we need is you. We need your spirit within us to be able to live this life, to grow in holiness and to be on mission. Father, we know that we're not necessarily the people that we want to be, but we're not the people we used to be. And so we are thankful for the people that we are by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you continue to work through us and use us to reach people for Christ, to share this good news and to be see more souls saved for you. What a joy, what a thrill it would be to see more people won for Christ, just like it would have been for those disciples that night as they could not sleep after seeing 3,000 people come to know you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.